Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Value Perspective. This week we return to our regularly scheduled content after our short Ukraine anniversary interlude. We hope you enjoyed it. Juan recently sat down with Professor Stephen Koonin. Steve is a nuclear physicist by training and has a CV a mile long, but some highlights include being the Undersecretary of Science during the first Obama administration, a professor at NYU School of Engineering, and BP's chief scientist. He's also an author of Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. This book has made a splash since publication in 2021 and has been the source for many a debate. In this episode, Juan and Steve cover the following. How the world has changed since Steve was at BP 20 years ago. The difference between weather change and climate change. How Steve would have advised Rishi Sunak if he was an advisor. Science communication and the use of red teaming. And finally, his thoughts on science-based targets for companies. Enjoy. Professor Stephen Kunin, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Great to be talking with you, Juan. Where do we find you today? Uh, I'm in upstate New York, about 50 miles north of Manhattan, and uh, uh, catching up before uh, I'm uh, off traveling tomorrow. Professor, I am referring to you as a professor because you will correct, correct me if I'm wrong. You are nowadays a professor at an NYU, New York University. That, that's correct. I've been a professor at NYU for about 10 years. And in a previous life, I was a professor at Caltech for 30 years. That's very interesting. I mean, actually, I have I have to ask you a question that you get asked a lot about your experience in Caltech. But before we do that, mm-hmm. can you please provide our listeners for uh, with a brief introduction about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm trained as a theoretical physicist with a PhD from MIT. I was on the faculty at Caltech for 30 years. I then uh, spent five years in industry as the chief scientist for BP, the energy company, helping them to figure out what beyond petroleum really meant, so alternatives and renewables. I then spent two and a half years in the US federal government as undersecretary for science in the Department of Energy in the first Obama administration. And as I said, I've been uh, for about 10 years uh, back in academia as a professor at New York University. My original research and fields of interest were nuclear physics, 
Uh, and toward the, in the beginning of the 90s, I got interested in climate science and uh, did some original work in, in that field. Uh, and since about 2004, when I joined BP, I became interested in practical energy uh, as opposed to the physicist's energy, which is very different, of course. Um, and, and so I've seen you know, several sides of this energy climate nexus that um, we're going to be talking about. You're also the author of a great book that came out on 2021 called Unsettled, What Climate Science Tell Us, What It Doesn't and Why It Matters. Can you please like uh, tell us a little bit about what the book was about? Sure. So, so when I uh, started refocusing my interest in climate energy about eight or nine years ago, I discovered that the official science said some things that were very surprising and were not reported in the media, such as no long-term trends in hurricanes, for example. And I started to get concerned about the accuracy with which the scientific results were being communicated to the public. I wrote a series of op-eds, mostly in the Wall Street Journal. And then starting about uh, four years ago, I started to seriously write a book and the book was published just about two years ago. Uh, in it, virtually everything I say is drawn from the official reports or the primary research literature or the underlying data. And so it's kind of difficult to dismiss it. And many people have found the book both a useful non-expert introduction to climate science, but also very revealing about uh, what the science actually says, as opposed to what we hear in the media and from the politicians. The reception has been great. We've had over 200,000 copies sold. It's been translated into more than a few languages. Um, many people have thanked me for writing the book, but I've lost a few friends in the uh, process who feel as though I somehow have betrayed the consensus. It is a fantastic book and we are on the camp that thanks you for writing and being brave to write a book such as that. Before we actually go into delving into many of the topics of, of your book and some of your research, I want to bring out something that I know that you get asked a lot and is the fact that you had the privilege of being a student of Richard Feynman and engaging with him. So I, I if you, if you don't mind repeating the story about how was that experience like? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, I, I came to Caltech in 1968 as a beginning undergraduate student. And uh, like many students of that era, I was attracted there in part because of, of Dick Feynman, the famous Red Book series that he wrote of introductory physics books. And it was a real treat to interact with him as an undergraduate student most memorable was an opportunity to play the bongos with him at uh, the at a party at, at one of the faculty's uh, uh, houses. He was, beyond being an extraordinary physicist uh, with unique talents, he was something of a showman. And you see that in his lectures. Uh, it was very much evident in personal interactions with him. Of course, 
Later on, as I became a faculty member at Caltech, I interacted with him as a colleague, and there were some memorable exchanges there as well. That's a, that must have been a fantastic experience. Your book came out, as you mentioned, two years ago, and so we need to ask you, how much has the world changed? And maybe the narrative over the course of the last two years, yeah. and maybe if, you could, if we could have a second part to that question, how has the world evolved today versus the way it was when you were working for BP 20 years? So, so let me start with the recent changes over the last two years. On the science front, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, issued its uh, sixth assessment report, AR6, in August of 21, so about four months after the book was published. And what was new there was, first of all, they deemed the more extreme emissions scenarios, so future emissions, uh, they deemed the more extreme scenarios unlikely. So the, they thought the world would not be emitting quite as much as they had thought in previous reports. Uh, and that a more moderate scenario was more plausible. They also trimmed the uncertainties in the sensitivities uh, of the climate system, made the more extreme sensitivities somewhat less, and the uh, low sensitivities they raised up a little bit. The net result of that is the most plausible projection for a warming by 2100 over pre-industrial values would be about 2.7 degrees Celsius, uh, which um, is actually quite a bit less than what previous projections had um, given. In terms of more extreme weather events, again, apart from things directly associated with heat, like record high temperatures, heat waves, and so on, other extreme weather events, it's very hard to find any trends at all, uh, whether it's droughts, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, and, and so on. So not much change there from uh, previous reports. So, you know, on the science front, things uh, looked a bit more relaxed. Uh, on the energy front, we got... I think the world has gotten a strong lesson in how difficult it's going to be to reduce emissions, uh, both for the technologies involved, the massive changes in energy infrastructure involved. And nobody has given a satisfactory answer to what do we do about six and a half billion people in the developing world who do not have enough energy. And the most reliable and convenient way for them to get that energy is fossil fuels. Uh, to me, that remains one of the central problems in trying to decarbonize the world. The uh, energy crisis in Europe, precipitated in part by the Ukraine, but not only, I think has given everybody um, a strong lesson in the fact that energy reliability and energy affordability take precedence 
over reducing emissions. And we see the actions in Europe, for example, now saying natural gas is okay, or Germany um, moving back to coal, uh, because in fact, the primary um, needs, if you like, are reliability and affordability. And, and then on the, the media front, the popular dialogue front in the media politicians, uh, more and more, I think, unreasonable exaggeration of the threat. So you have Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, saying a little while ago, you know, the world is on the highway to climate hell and our foot is on the accelerator. I mean, that's just nonsense. Right? And you hear similar nonsense from other leading political figures, Mark Carney, for example, in the finance world. Um, and I think the world is starting to become, apart from the leadership, uh, the people who actually run the energy system are starting to become much more realistic about how difficult it's going to be to reduce emissions. And what about how much it has changed since you were at BP 20 years ago? Oh, boy. You, you know, the, there has been, I think, a broadening of the realization since that time that, or a broadening of the acceptance that we're going to work to reduce emissions. That's become a more widespread notion. John Brown, who was the CEO at the time in BP, was among the leaders and the first people in the energy business to say, we've got to take this seriously. I think, you know, that the fad in technologies shifts from one thing to another. We were really interested in biofuels at the time. Uh, I think there's still interesting research potential in biofuels, but the bulk of the attention has now shifted to wind and solar for deployment. And for research, you start to see a greater emphasis on carbon capture, sequestration, utilization. And fusion has recently uh, popped up on everybody's uh, list of favorite technologies, as well as, of course, small nuclear reactors, which were just barely being discussed at the time. So, and hydrogen, of course, how could I forget hydrogen, which is on everybody's lips. So these are all technology ideas. Some of them may pan out, most of them won't, and the world should be doing that. But there is a bigger push to deployment now than there was in 2005. Professor, before we go on to the topic of nuclear, of which of course you are an expert, in your book, you clearly explain the difference between climate change and weather change. And we believe that that is something that tends to be confused. Can you please explain the difference and on that same line of discussion, can you walk us through what is the difference or, offer, or observations between actual human impact on climate change and natural background variations? Yeah, uh, this is a common confusion, sometimes deliberate in the media. I like to distinguish between climate change, which means the change in the climate due to human influences versus a changing climate. Uh, which may involve other factors causing the climate to change. Climate itself needs to be carefully distinguished from weather. 
Weather is what happens every day. Um, it changes from day to day. It's different from year to year, seasons. Climate is defined as the long-term average of weather. And the official definition is 30 years average. Mm -hmm. And so if you look outside your window one day and say, aha, it's climate change, uh, that's just completely wrong. You need mm -hmm. to take a 30-year perspective. And when you do that, uh, even then you can get surprised because the climate changes all on its own. It changes in response to external natural influences, like when a volcano goes off, it will um, slightly cool the planet for a few years. So you don't see it in the 30 year averages, but it's there. Uh, or uh, more possibly perhaps when the sun varies on longer time scales. And it also changes from its own natural variability. And we see in the historical and paleo records, large changes in climate, either globally or regionally. And so the challenge in climate science is to distinguish those changes that happen due to human influences, which became significant only in the last 70 or 80 years and are growing from the natural variability. Let me give you one example just you know, that, uh, to illustrate. Uh, not only do we talk about average temperatures, but you also talk about the changes in the frequency or character of extreme events. And so this past summer, when we had terrible floods in Pakistan, the Pakistani environmental minister gets on the media a couple of days later and says, this is due to climate change. And uh, it's the worst we've seen since 1961. And of course, the scientist in me, as I teach my students, is to ask the question, what happened before 1961? And of course, you can readily find that data about the monsoon on the web going back to 1860 or so, to British, when the British were in India. And what you find is that there were many other monsoons that were comparably strong as the one in 1861 or the one this past summer. Um, it's just that there are so many more people now in Pakistan. The trees on the mountainsides have been cut down, so the water runs off. Uh, and people are living in floodplains where they weren't very many before. And so that made the impacts worse, although the weather phenomenon itself was hardly different than what we saw in the past when human influences were much smaller or negligible uh, on the climate. So it's really hard uh, in many dimensions to distinguish what's human caused versus natural variability. That's really interesting. Nuclear is a topic that we keep coming back over and over during the course of the, of the podcast. And so when you were part of the government in the Obama administration, you launched a scheme for small nuclear reactors and you have actually consulted for at least one company which was pioneering the new designs. 
How much could this technological development improve the landscape going forward? And why isn't more why isn't more momentum or backup behind this sort of initiatives? There is more momentum in the uh, nuclear field now than there was uh, when I was in the government uh, about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I, you know, full disclosure first, I'm, I'm a nuclear physicist by training. And so the atom is my friend, I like to say. <laughs> But I think if you take a hard technical and economic look at what carbon-free power system would look like, electrical grid, you come to realize that nuclear has to play a significant role in that because it is emissions-free. People say, well, there are emissions in making the concrete and so on, but that's really tiny compared to emissions, say, from a coal plant. So it's emissions-free. It is, in some dimensions, a proven technology. 19% of the US electricity comes from nuclear right now. And in France, the numbers are sort of 70%. Japan was 30%. But as important, it's a reliable power source. If you're gonna have a lot of wind and solar, as the world seems to want to do, you have to worry about the intermittency the fact that the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time. Short-term intermittency, you know, day-to-day, -day, no solar at night, that's pretty easily handled with some kind of backup system. But there are long periods of time, the UK has them, Germany has them, Texas has them, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine very much. And those periods can last for weeks or months at a time. And so you need to have a power system that's a backup, that's at least as capable as the wind and solar. And that means it's gonna double the cost. Even if you don't use it much of the time, it's gonna double the cost, at least. And nuclear is a very important option for backup for the reasons that I said. The battery technology is not there yet. Carbon capture and storage uh, for gas turbines, which is another option, uh, is just not economic right now, whereas nuclear has got a number of uh, benefits. So I think, you know, we will see the first small reactor in the ground uh, before the end of this decade in the U.S. I know in the U.K., Rolls-Royce is also pushing hard. The Chinese, as usual in some of these things, have moved out ahead smartly. They've got more than a few of these operating already and, and many more planned. The, the slowdown or the lack of rapid progress is due in part, and I think it's not unjustified, that the regulatory agencies, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the US, wants to be sure, as, it, as sure as it can, about the safety, reliability, management of the spent fuel, and so on. So. Um, they're taking their time appropriately to make sure things are fine. But the interesting part is for these small reactors, once you get the approval, the design is the same for every reactor, not like the big ones in the US. And so they can start cranking them out uh, and hopefully bring down the cost as they come down the learning curve. Is this a solution that will take at least a decade, you reckon? Or is there, it, it will depend on the pace of the regulation Look, everything in energy takes at least a decade, if not more, because there are large, expensive facilities. They need to be reliable. 
Uh, they need to work together. Uh, it takes a long time to pay off the capital costs. So energy change happens over decades. It does not happen overnight. You have been quite critical of both Europe's and the UK's energy policies in the past. And so we wanted to ask you, what would you advise to Rishi Sunak, UK's prime minister, if you were appointed his advisor? Oh, boy. Um, first of all, you know, cancel the climate crisis, okay? This is, uh, acknowledge that it is a challenge and a task to reduce human influences on the climate. But also acknowledge that it's going to take time. So that's the first thing. The second is I would work to formulate a decarbonization strategy that incorporates technology, regulation, economics, somebody's gonna make money doing this, behavior that predictably will reduce emissions at a pace not set by arbitrary goals, net zero by 2050 or whatever, uh, but rather is conditioned by trying to make sure that the disruption is minimized. You know, Bill Nordhaus, an, an economist at Yale in 2018, won the Nobel Prize for energy economics, in part for the realization that there's an optimal pace to decarbonize. If you do it too fast, which is what the world is trying to do now, it creates a lot of disruption because energy, I like to say, touches everything everywhere all the time. And if you do it too slowly, you um, perhaps incur greater climate risk. And so there's an optimal pace. And I would tell the PM or the US president, uh, put together a plan that minimizes disruption rather than just throwing particular actions at the, the wall and expecting something is going to stick. I think another thing I would tell Rishi, if I would talk to him like that, is that you know this problem, to the extent that CO2 is a problem, is going to be solved mostly in the developing world, not in Europe or the US. The U.S. numbers, the U.S. accounts for 13% of global emissions right now. Uh, even if it went to zero tomorrow, that would be negated by the growth of emissions from the developing world. And emissions are going to grow in the developing world. Those people need energy, and they're going to get it from fossil fuels. So another thing I would tell him is that the most effective way that the U.S., the EU can influence things uh, is by developing and demonstrating emissions light technologies, those small reactors, better batteries, non-carbon fuels, grid management. Uh, all of those are particularly ripe. Fusion longer term, we can talk about fusion if you like, and making them as cheap and easy as the fossil fuels. Bill Gates calls it the green premium. Uh, so we should be doing that. And then the last thing I think that the developed world should be doing is focusing a lot more on adaptation because emissions are gonna keep going up, I would say for the rest of this century, if development of the rest of the world proceeds as we should hope it, it does. And we're gonna adapt and we're good at it. 
in the developing in the developed world we we know how to adapt and it will hardly affect us but then also have to make sure that the developing world has the capacity to adapt and i would focus some attention and effort on that as well professor i'm going to be cheeky and i'm going to spin the question a little bit and so what would you advise or what you would what would you do if you were put in charge of a company like exxon <laughs> Um, I wouldn't want that job. That that is, you know, business generally is so complicated. For me, as a academic and theoretical physicist, I love the simplicity of of thought and leave the details to somebody else. But no, uh, you know, seriously, your primary duty in Exxon is to make money and to do it reliably, predictably, and legally. And Exxon, your core strength is producing oil and gas. Uh, you do that very well. The world is going to need that for the next many decades. And I would make sure, first of all, that I tend to that business. But then as a feeler toward the future or a subsidiary, I would be investing in Uh, some uh, in R&D and D of some of the low carbon technologies and they are doing that. I know the, the guy who runs the R&D shop at, at Exxon, he's quite thoughtful, quite, um, quite a great engineer and, and uh, business guy. And so I think they are doing the right sort of things. I know there are Stakeholders, primarily the activists, maybe not the shareholders, but the, some of the stakeholders who wish they would be going a lot faster and cutting back on oil production or investment. Uh, but the world is going to need that for a long time. If Exxon doesn't produce the oil, somebody else is going to do that. And so you, they might as well do it cleanly, safely, and, and so on. So there's a lot of ignorance, and I'd say that not in a bad way, uh, just lack of knowledge about the energy system among activists, but unfortunately among many government decision makers as well. And so I would, you know, if I were running Exxon, I'd try to educate people uh, about energy realities. Professor, one climate argument, which we think might be fair enough, is that even if things will probably be okay, the downside, if they aren't okay, is pretty large. So shouldn't we just take the more cautious approach and decarbonize aggressively any way to avoid the risk? The argument that you just made plays in some parts of the developed world, uh, but I don't think it plays very well in the developing world who need energy to dramatically improve their quality of life. Um, lighting, transportation, heat, and so on are existential needs for those folks. But just for example, in Nigeria, the average person uses one thirtieth of the energy that people in the US use. And the energy changes people's lives, as I said. So for those folks, uh, you're asking them to trade 
the solution of a very real, immediate and soluble problem in favor of something that is vague, uncertain, we don't know what's gonna happen or when it's gonna happen with the climate and probably not soluble. And I think that's a trade they probably would not want to make. I like to say, you know, it's like telling somebody who's starving, no, you shouldn't eat that food because it's got bad cholesterol. All right. I mean, the six and a half billion people again need that energy. So maybe we might choose to aggressively decarbonize in the developed world. Although, as I said, there's an optimal pace to do that. But the rest of the world is going to just get the energy it needs uh, and will ignore us. Uh, and in fact, they've already said uh, pretty much that that's the case. So we might clutch our pearls, so to speak, and fret about some uncertain, improbable, but high impact event. But the rest of the world's got more immediate and more soluble problems. Professor, I have to say that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you had lost some friends when you published your book in 2021. And I know as a fact that you've been accused of being a climate denier. I think that that's the word that they have used, but you don't sound like one at all. Why do you think people are, have been so harsh on the research that you've done and the way that you have communicated? Yeah. Um, let me say first that very good in the book is my own research. Uh, I was very careful to take everything right out of the reports. Um, and so, you know, I can be hardly accused of denying the science. What, what uh, I think people are upset about is that the media, most of the politicians, and some of the scientists have deliberately exaggerated the narrative, the threat, uh, and see anything that deviates from that uh, as undermining their call to action. Uh, but I see my responsibility as a scientist to clearly lay out what's known, what isn't known, what the threats, the risks, the benefits are of a changing climate, as well as the dimensions of the possible actions, uh, costs, efficacy, trade-offs and, and so on. And in the end, to let society decide, not that the scientists should decide, hey, the world really needs to decarbonize because there are so many other dimensions in which the scientists have no expertise. So it's a political question. And I think the job of the scientists is simply to inform people about the trade-offs, not to persuade them to make the trade-offs in one direction or another. So that's why I think people have gotten mad at some people have gotten mad at But you know, I talked to many climate scientists privately and, and there are only a very few who would say, Steve, you got it wrong. Many of them say, Steve, at least in private, will say, Steve, you got it right. But it's not helpful, they would say. Which leads us nicely into our next question, which is, much of today's debate is chaired by narratives, which is something that you have mentioned during our conversation and the way that science is being communicated, which is something that you approach in your book as well. And there's something that you mentioned in your book that caught my attention, which is uh, a suggestion that you were making about using red teaming as a tool. 
And that's very interesting for us because this being a podcast mainly on decision-making under uncertainty, that's a tool that we have explored in the past. So I was wondering if you could explain what is the current problem with the way that science is being communicated? And how could red teaming help? The, the way in which science, climate science has been communicated apart from the media stories, the, the underlying all those media stories are the UN reports, or in some cases, uh, national reports like the US government uh, generates. Those reports are meant to summarize, assess, uh, condense the scientific findings uh, into things that are understandable and digestible by non-expert decision makers. They're massive undertakings, take hundreds of scientists working for two or three years. They run to a couple thousand pages each. And the reports themselves are generally not bad when you read them in detail as I and other scientists have. It's when you get to the summaries for policymakers of those reports and then on to the media coverage where you see distortions. Um, just to give you one example, I've given you the Pakistan flood example. I'll give you one about Greenland melting, right? So a couple of years ago, The Guardian, uh, the UK paper, publishes a headline article that Greenland is now melting three times faster than it did or four times faster than it did 30 years ago from 1990 to 2010. Uh, and indeed, the data show that. But what they didn't tell you was that if you go from 1910 to 1930, the increase in melting was just as large. And the melt rate in 1930 is about the same as what it is today. And the melt rate is actually decreasing over the last 15 years or so. So it's fascinating onto one particular part of the record that is consistent with the narrative and ignoring all the other parts, which aren't, that is a very unscientific deception, I would say. And so if you had commissioned a team of credentialed scientists who would go over not only the reports, but the summaries for reports and say, you know, you should have showed the um, 50 years before the graph that you put in, uh, or, um, you, you know, you make a big deal out of a sea level rise of a tenth of a millimeter a year or something like that. Uh, to put things in context, both historical and quantitative, uh, that would, I think, improve the reports a lot if your goal is to inform people as opposed to persuade them. The problem is that you can't get any of the official um, bodies to take that red team approach. They will say, well, it's peer reviewed. We send it out for comments and so on. But they, in the end, are the arbiters of which comments they decide to pay attention to and which comments they, they ignore. And so when you go through the reports, as I did in the book, in, in part, and other people have in other parts, it's easy to find so many misrepresentations in the summaries or the reports themselves um, that it's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's too easy. So, you know, this is not the way scientific advice should be conveyed. It's, it's kind of a malpractice in advising.
Professor, we were, we were wondering if you had any thoughts on something that is quite close to our industry, the industry of asset management, and is this concept of science-based targets for companies. Do you think this is a sensible approach and is it an effective way to tackle the problem? So, so I had not really paid attention to the term before, though I'd heard it. So I looked it up, of course, because I knew we would be talking about it. And I think the word science in there is entirely for decoration. Um, it's not serious. I, as near as I can figure out, what it means is that companies should take actions consistent with getting to net zero by 2050. Um, and that's the only science really involved. I, as I think is clear from what I've said already, and even more clear if you actually look at the data, The world is not going to get to zero by 2050 uh, for many reasons. And, and even John Kerry has now admitted that. So I would say stop using that term science-based targets. Let's just try to understand graceful actions that will act to reduce emissions, but at the same time, not be so disruptive that you break the energy system. Mm -hmm. Professor, we are coming to an end of our session and we cannot allow you to leave us without providing us with at least one book recommendation, something that is really interesting from anything that you've been reading lately. You know, on the, the energy front, I like two books, actually three. Let me just give you the authors rather than the books because you can easily look them up. If you look at Bjorn Lomborg, who's an economist talking about energy and climate matters, Alex Epstein, who is a philosopher writing about climate matters, and Michael Schellenberg, Schellenberger, who is a um, environmental activist writing about climate and energy matters. I think all three of us come to very similar conclusions uh, about what could be done, should be done, and their books are well worth reading. I, I, I would add one more, not quite in that direction. Uh, Dan Jurgen's book, The New Map. Dan is a good friend uh, and he writes wonderfully uh, and of course has tremendous insight into the global energy situation. So that's, I don't know, four authors, four books uh, that I, are high on my current reading list. Um, probably the books of Backlab Smil, who actually... Oh. Uh, He, he, he wrote a very nice piece about your book as well. Yeah, I, I'm a great admirer of Smil. Um, I learned so much from him 20 years ago when I started to learn about practical energy. Uh, I was very proud when he agreed to write an endorsement for my book. Uh, he is He's one of my heroes. And that's great. Professor Conin, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time and best of luck on your trip to London tomorrow. Okay, great chatting with you.